Well, today we're going to continue our study in the 12th chapter of the book of Revelation. Before I do, I want to say thank you to uh, Brother Ronnie Wright and Brother Fred Ferguson for filling in while I was on vacation. We had a wonderful, uh, refreshing time of vacation, and um, it was really good to, to hear these brothers uh, open up the Word of God. Continue to lift these brothers in prayer. God has gifted us with some young men who are very serious about the ministry of the Word, and they are diligent students. And so we certainly appreciate uh, their ministry of teaching and preaching and just partnering with us in preaching the gospel of God's wonderful grace. Now, today I'm going to, as I said, continue in uh, the book of uh, Revelation in chapter 12. In our last session, we kind of gave an overview in chapter 12, especially the first two scenes. We gave an overview of some of the imagery that's there and what those uh, images portray. So we talked about primarily uh, the image of the woman who gives birth and then the serpent. So today, uh, and, and then the, the conflict that, uh, that arises between them, we looked at it historically as well as, as it relates directly to the person of Christ himself. But the attack of the serpent against the seed of the woman doesn't begin in the ministry of Christ. It begins in the garden. It begins with um, the fall of humanity. And then it plays itself out in different ways throughout redemptive history. It is the epitome of the two-seed conflict that is alluded to in Genesis 3.15, where God says he will put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So what we see in both uh, the first or the first two visions, uh, first two parts of the vision here in Revelation chapter 12 are various manifestations of that two-seed conflict. And we concluded uh, in our last session by looking at the nature of the conflict. And the nature of the conflict is first to prevent the birth of the Messiah. Secondly, once the birth of the Messiah has not been averted, then the attempt is to divert the message of the Messiah so that those, uh, so that, that, that fallen humanity would not look to the Messiah, Messiah for their salvation. Now, what I want to do is pick up uh, primarily, well, we'll look at verses 5 and 6 individually. So let me read verse 5 in chapter 12. And if you haven't already heard the, the, the messages or the lessons leading up to this, I would encourage you to, to listen to the last one where we, we gave the overview of the image of the dragon and the woman and the seed of the woman. But in verse uh, 5, it says... Um, uh, yeah, uh, chapter 12, verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, that single verse captures the totality of the physical, earthly ministry of Christ. In this instance, she gave birth to a son that is no longer allegorically or not allegorically, symbolically um, referencing national Israel. This refers to the effort 
of Satan through the uh, through the the wickedness of Herod, even though he didn't realize he was doing the bidding of Satan, but it was the attempt of Herod to keep the Messiah from being born. So that is a climactic point in redemptive history. So having failed in verse four, uh, it says his tail, speaking of the, the dragon, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So he's failed. So verse five is a summary. It, it, it encapsulates the totality of Christ's earthly ministry. And this includes his earthly preaching and teaching ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. Notice what, again, John sees here, that she gives, gives birth to a male child. And by the way, you can't miss the messianic language here. You can't miss the allusions to places like Psalms 2 and other places where he will rule with the, with iron, um, with a rod of iron. That's taken almost directly from, from Psalms, uh, Psalms 2. But it says, she gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Um, but her child was caught up to God. So that, that encapsulates the totality of, of Christ's earthly ministry, including his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Now, remember when Christ, um, the, the resurrected Christ, encountered his disciples, and this is part of the Great Commission, and, and uh, Michael Horton always asks the question, how does the Great Commission begin? And people are, are quick to say it begins, go ye into all of the world, but that's not how the Great Commission begins. It begins with this, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me, therefore go into all nations. So Christ, the resurrected Christ is captured here. And not only his resurrection, but his ascension and his present intercession. Again, the, the, the woman's son is raised up or caught up to God and to his throne. Christ is presently seated at the right hand of the Father where he presently intercedes on our behalf. So verse five, having laid out the parameters and the, the nature of the conflict between the dragon and the woman, verse five really brings it home. And that is the summary of Jesus present or his earthly ministry as well as his present session. Now that brings us to verse six. Let's look at verse six. And it says, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared uh, by God in which she is, uh, she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So in verse six, it's, it sort of gives us a split scene. In verse 5, we are told that the son of the woman is caught up to the throne of God. So verse 6 picks up after the ascension. And so rather than uh, showing us Christ exalted, now the, sh the scene shifts 
back to the woman. And in this case, the woman is no longer just referring to Mary, but the woman refers to all of those who belong to Christ. And notice in, in after the ascension, the woman is under attack by the dragon. Now from here, we want to make a few observations, uh, three in particular, as it relates to verse 6, because on the one hand, as we said, split scene, Christ is ascended, or he ascends to the throne of God, and then the woman is left in the earth. So as Christ is ascended, and as Christ is the ruler over all of the kings of the earth, we still have the woman in the earth. And this is, by the way, before I, I get into this, <clears throat> this is a big part of understanding the dynamics of what's set forth in the book of Revelation. There's a tendency to try to read Revelation in a linear fashion, which we've addressed, but also in a, in a sense of like looking at the calendar that, okay, this is going to happen and then this is going to happen. But in reality, as we've seen a, a few times in, even in the wording, Revelation shows us the things that are. In other words, the things that are our present reality in light of what God has said in the, in the, in the past concerning the, the coming of the Messiah and in light of the actual return of the Messiah and the consummation that will come with his return. So Revelation shows us the, the, the naked truth behind things as they currently are, even as we march towards the consummation of human history. So three things that we are told about the woman, because what is, and, and this is as much our reality as it was for uh, the first century church. So the, the audience that originally received this letter, this was intended as, as an encouragement for them, and it was explaining the dynamics of some of what was taking place among them as much as it explains to us the dynamics in which we are presently living. So here's the first thing. The son is caught up to the throne of God, but the woman flees into the wilderness. And since the woman at this point does not refer to the mother of Jesus, but rather at this point, it refers to the covenant community. So the covenant community flees it, as it were, into the wilderness. Obviously, the wilderness is being used here as a metaphor. It's not saying that they scattered necessarily into, had to hide in the desert. But I think if you begin with Jesus' uh, disciples, even after his crucifixion and prior to the resurrection, they scattered. They scattered and they were hidden. When Jesus appears to them after his resurrection, they are hidden behind a locked door because they feared for their lives. Once we have the day of Pentecost and the church gathers and begins to grow, we are also told in the book of Acts that persecution came to the church. And when persecution hit the church, they scattered. Not everyone, but they scattered. So the wilderness, 
which I think is a very helpful metaphor, by the way, and it is a reminder to us that until the Lord returns, his church is journeying or pilgriming through a wilderness. And a point of reference that we've often made is that, and, and this is to sort of refute the idea that there is a Christian nation, let alone that we live in a Christian nation, which we do not. There is no such thing as a Christian nation. The entire world is under a curse and we are all journeying in the wilderness. So the church in the world today is not equivalent to the prophetic role of Israel under national Israel, the, the prophets under national Israel, where there was a direct link between people, throne, and altar, because they were truly a theocracy. We're not that. Uh, we are like the children of Israel in the wilderness. We are like Joseph in Egypt. We are like Daniel and his friends in Babylon. Until the Lord returns, we are ambassadors of Christ, and the church has been set up universally as embassies, embassies of the kingdom that is coming. Now, we know the kingdom has come, but the king hasn't come to consummate his kingdom yet. So until the consummation, we're existing in a wilderness. That's why it is not our goal to transform the culture. Our goal is to witness to the culture and bring as many as the Lord allows us into the reality of the kingdom of Christ. Remember, he has been caught up to the throne of God. And you notice that in the New Testament, Paul in Ephesians as well as in Colossians identifies us as being seated in heavenly places in Christ. But we are, so on the one hand, because of our union with Christ, we are seated in heavenly places. But our existential reality is we live in a wilderness. We're not to be content with the wilderness. It doesn't mean that we don't cut back the, 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 all of the, 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 the stuff that grows up in the wilderness. It's not that we don't do a battle against evil, but understand that we will never fix this thing until Christ himself returns. So the woman flees into the wilderness because her son, her savior, the Messiah, has been caught up to the throne of God. And the persecution and the attacks that precipitated the death of her son being caught up to the throne of God continues. So the persecution against the seed of the woman continues even as the, the, the seed of the woman has been raised to the throne of God. So she flees into the wilderness. Here's the second thing. God has prepared a place for her in the wilderness where she is to be nourished. I think that's a wonderful reminder that even though she's in a wilderness or we are in the wilderness, 
this this earth as it is is not our home. It doesn't mean that God is going to take us away from this place. What it means is Christ is going to return to this place and make it what it was supposed to be from the beginning. But the beautiful thing here is that while we are in the wilderness with everything that is packed into that imagery, God nourishes us. One of my favorite statements out of the 23rd Psalms as you isolate various um, uh, parts of that Psalm, but one of my favorite parts is when David says that he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And that image stays with me because we're not home yet. And I think that's part of the value of the Lord's table and the sacraments. That until the Lord returns, and I, I think of the words of Jesus on the night of the institution where he does eat the bread with them, but he tells them, don't drink. I'm not going to drink with you. You go ahead and drink. And he continues to feed us. And he says, I'll drink it anew with you when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. So in other words, when the wilderness has been, has been overthrown and the created order returns to its pristine purity, and it is purged of all of the, the things that has troubled us, then we will have this feast and this celebration with the one who has been caught up to the throne of God. In the meantime, we're in a wilderness, and it's in this wilderness that he nourishes us. God doesn't have to get rid of all of the things that trouble us in order to nurture us. He nurtures us. We are the people of God. We are the covenant community. And the word nurture, nourish means that we are given strength, strength to continue to serve him, strength to continue to worship him, strength to be able to glorify him, even as we deal with all of the ups and downs and all of the trials that are involved in living in this present wilderness experience. There is a transcendent element to the public gathering of God's people or just to the, the, the gathering of God's people where his word is ministered to us and the, the, the covenant meal is shared among God's people to remind us that in spite of what we see, in spite of what we experience, in spite of what we engage, in spite of the flesh failing, that our King, our Savior, presently rules and reigns. And He nurtures, He nourishes us, He feeds us. Also, in the 23rd Psalms, not only does David say that he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemy, but he also says, and he restores my soul. And you think about that. What, why does anything need to be restored? Because it's been spent. And brothers and sisters, 
living in a wilderness is taxing on the soul. It weighs us down. It causes us to be discontent and discouraged. Read the record of the children of Israel as they were in the wilderness. And oftentimes we point our fingers in a haughty sort of way. Look at those foolish people in the wilderness. But look at some of the things that they said. Look at some of the things that they did because they were in the wilderness. And what you'll see is that what we easily write off as immaturity on their part, it remains with us that we find ourselves doing the same things that they did because they got tired of being in the wilderness. 40 years is a long time. And so for 40 years, they lived out of tents. For 40 years, they were living out of a suitcase. And pretty soon you start wondering, well, when are we going to get home? Are we, maybe this is the place. Maybe we were better off in Egypt. And many of us do the same things. And so our soul gets worn out as we deal with political upheavals, as we deal with civil dis, uh, dis, or, or unrest and disorder, as we deal with personal issues, health concerns, we are in a wilderness. And it's in that wilderness that God nourishes his people. And as he nourishes us through the ministry of word and sacrament, he restores our soul. So we are constantly and in conflict, but as we avail ourselves to the means of grace, we are constantly restored through the things that, that God has appointed for our nourishment. Here's the third thing about verse six. The period of being nourished by God in the wilderness corresponds to the time span in which the outer courts of the temple will be trampled by the nations. Let's look at chapter 11, verse 12. And also, or excuse me, chapter 11, verse 2. And also it corresponds to the ministry of the church or of the word by the church. So if we go back to chapter 11, we'll look at verses uh, 2 and 3. Uh, in verse 2, it alludes to the trampling of the outer court by the nations. And then in verse 3, it alludes to the ministry of the word. In verse, um, well, in fact, I'll just read uh, 1 through 3. Uh, Revelation chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So as we now go back to uh, chapter 12, verse 6, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. So the time, the time span of her nourishment 
corresponds to the time of the ministry of the word as the temple, the outer courts of the temple are being trampled. And that's simply another angle on the wilderness reality that is the world until the consummation. So again, we're going looking at the first vision or the first part of the vision in Revelation chapter 12. The conflict between the dragon and the woman. His initial intent was to prevent the birth of the Messiah. It goes back to, and, and we mentioned um, we mentioned in the garden, but this includes Joseph's efforts or the Joseph's brother's effort to, to try to wipe him out. It includes uh, the, the famine that hit the land when Joseph was sold as a slave. If, if the Lord has not had not spared Joseph to be able to be in a position to provide grain, all of the seed could have been wiped out by famine. But the Lord preserved, and that's the way he expresses it later. The Lord spared me that he would save many, but he saved the seed. They, they could have been wiped out in the wilderness, but the Lord preserved them. So throughout the nation of Israel, which provided the lineage for the birth of the seed of the woman established in Genesis 3.15 by, by way of prophecy, all of those efforts to wipe out God's promised seed failed. So ultimately, even in the time of, um, of Mary being pregnant and giving birth, you have Herod who's on the throne who is jealous because he knows that the, the birth of the Messiah is the, new, is the real king of Israel and feeling threatened, he has all of the babies under a certain age to be killed, baby boys under a certain age to be killed. But the Messiah triumphed. And in his triumph, it included his death, burial, and resurrection. All of that is what's covered in the first five verses of chapter 12. But when he is caught up to the throne of God, the woman at that point transitions. This is not just the mother of Jesus that's portrayed or the family lineage of Jesus. Now we are seeing the covenant community driven into the wilderness for a, a, an extended period of time where they are nourished by the word of God. And their nourishment comes as they are given over to the ministry of the word. So the the, the trampling of the outer court by the nations, the attacks that come as a result of the ministry of the word, all of those things combine. And that explains not just the church in the first century, but it explains the church in the world even to this present moment. That we are in a wilderness experience, our responsibility, we are still we are connected to the one who has ascended to the throne and we are to be the messengers of his good news and the warning and the harbingers of his return. We are to tell the world that he who ruled, he who lived, died and was risen. And he who was risen presently reigns. And he who reigns is coming back to judge. And so we are to call men and women to repent because the ruling resurrected Savior 
is going to return with judgment. That's not a popular message. And because it's not popular, not just the fact that this present uh, evil age will come to an end, but all human souls must give an account to him who does rule and who will return. It affects our worldview. It, it affects our living. And people are resistant to that message. And as a result of it, there will be persecution. There are going to be those things that we can't fix. There are going to be those things that we can't explain. But as we experience those things, we are nourish, nourished. And we are nourished by that which God has provided uh, for our for our our being uh, our strength being renewed and our souls being restored, so that we could give praises to Him even as we await His return. Now, in our next session, I'm going to pick up in verse 13, or yeah, move forward and and sort of look at, or actually probably pick up on verse seven and and look at some some other things that are. Or kind of throw in both uh, the the interim vision in in verses seven and following, and then later in verse thirteen. But hopefully that sort of ties a bow or connects nicely to what we have addressed in our previous session. Um, we are reminded of our present moment, and we should be refreshed with the reality of Christ's present rule. And the reminder that he who presently rules is our current source of strength. And regardless of what we experience in the here and now, even in, as the outward man perishes, we are indeed transferred into the kingdom of, of, of Christ. And we are indeed seated with him in heavenly places. I hope this uh, helps to make sense of an otherwise very difficult book and we will continue our studies next week. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the reminders that our present moment, which has been issued forth from your hand, is sufficient for us in all of its challenges. Your word equips us for the challenges that you have allowed us to endure. Your word is the encouragement to us in spite of our own present personal experiences. Your word is comfort to us. Your word of peace is counterbalanced against the, all of the, dis, uh, the, the, the turmoil that we experience in ourselves and that we are presently in. We do live in a wilderness. We do, it, we do serve you, not on home territory, but we know that there are enemies all around, and even in our inner man, we struggle. So we pray that you would continue to nourish us, that we would be strengthened and our souls would be refreshed for your glory as we serve you, even in the presence of all of these things. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his righteous life, which has been credited to us. We thank you for his victorious death and his triumph over the grave. But most of all, Father, we thank you that he who lived for our righteousness and died for our sins and was raised for our justification is presently seated in a wounded body 
so that our wounds would not be in vain. Thank you that by his stripes we are indeed healed. Strengthen us for your service and for your glory. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.